You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual We've gotten a couple of calls in the last week or so uh, asking why I haven't discussed or addressed uh, Rolling Stone, Jackie, the UVA scandal, what's been going down. And the fact of the matter is it's just a really difficult thing to talk about. And I'm not sure uh, that me sitting here alone in this room with the Texas at risk youth and my malprivilege and my penis and my not being at risk for this kind of victimization, I was really the right person to talk about. And I was just sitting back and listening I was reading, reading a lot of other people talking about it, uh, reading Amanda Hess, reading Lindy West, reading Roxane Gay, reading Rolling Stone, reading Washington Post, reading Eric Wimple, reading Emily Ophi, just taking it in and not really jumping in myself. Sometimes I don't feel like I have to jump into every pool and pee. Anyway, I've been thinking a little bit more about it and, and I'm going to talk about it, but I'm going to say that we're going to talk about this after the beginning of the year. I'm going to put one thing out there today. But after the beginning of the year, next week is our Christmas show that we taped in Seattle last week. And so I'm going to say something briefly that I want to get off my chest right now. And the next year, uh, first show of the year, hopefully, we will have a couple of guests in to talk about what this all means. The UVA thing, rape, false reports of rape, which are anomalies, all of this. But I, I do have to get this off my chest. And this is going to seem like an irrelevant tangent, but I will. Uh, it'll make sense in a minute. Uh, I came out in 1980-ish, 1981. I came out uh, right before HIV-AIDS slammed in the gay community and you know, I was there for the worst of it. I was there with my eyes open and there was a time and a lot of people don't – you know, people talk about HIV-AIDS uh, stigma now, the stigma or shame of being HIV positive now. And we've talked about that a lot on the show. We get calls from guys who are HIV positive who feel sort of uh, burdened by the shame and the stigma of it. And we get calls from people who are negative, who are clearly uh, phobic about HIV and what it is now, what it means to have it now, um, and the way they reject or react to partners who have HIV, which can be irrational and out of all proportion to their risks of acquiring uh, HIV in any sort of sexual interaction these days with somebody who's positive in treatment and has zero viral load. Anyway, I remember the worst of it, 83, 84, 85, 86, when people were dying in droves, when people were being discriminated against, when people were being thrown out of their apartments, fired from their jobs, abandoned by their lovers. And it wasn't like the gay community was golden then. I know the gay community was better than most, but there were we weren't covered in glory ourselves either. A lot of these people who early HIV/AIDS victims uh, who lost their jobs or their apartments were thrown out. Were thrown out. You know, were fired by gay managers at the restaurant where they worked. Were thrown out by their gay landlords or their gay boyfriends. There was a lot of ugliness in the gay community before everybody realized. I think in about 24 months that we were all in this together, and that being shitty to somebody with AIDS wasn't going to protect you. But anyway. The stigma and the shame of having AIDS was so great. People had their houses burned down who had AIDS. People were forced out of places. The stigma and the shame was so great, so crushing. And yet some people falsely claimed that they had HIV AIDS. Some people said they had AIDS who did not because after the initial period of terror and fear when people first began to pull together, 85-ish, there was this outpouring suddenly of sympathy and support for people with AIDS. 
and there were services for people with AIDS. There were some, in some places, financial incentives. There were the housing assistance and here and there, a Make-A-Wish Foundation for people with AIDS sprang up because to have HIV AIDS in 85 was to be dying and dying rapidly and dying pretty gruesomely. And there was this desire to ease that path. But mostly there was this sympathy and support. And there was, in some circles, there was a credibility or authority that somebody who had AIDS could claim that they could speak to and about the disease from a place of knowledge. And there were people who lied. There were people who said they had AIDS who did not because they wanted to claim that mantle of authority, because they wanted to access those services, because you know the 87 March on Washington, uh, the speaker from the stage announced that everyone should allow our beloved people with AIDS to come to the front of the march. It was a way in. If you had AIDS, you deserved all this support. And if you didn't have AIDS, you could access all of the support and attention by lying about it. Almost all people, almost all of them to a person who said that they had AIDS had fucking AIDS. It was rare and odd and crazy making and galling when someone would lie about it. It was an anomaly because a couple of people lied about having AIDS because they wanted the attention or the support the emotional support of the financial support of the service or whatever, because a handful, tiny handful of people lied about having AIDS. That didn't mean that we should disbelieve people who came forward and said that they had AIDS. Almost all people who stepped forward and said that they had AIDS fucking had AIDS. So our default assumption always, despite it being known that a handful of people had lied, was that the people who said that they had AIDS fucking had AIDS. Anyway, I've been thinking about those guys. Those guys who lied about having AIDS. As I read about UVA, as I read about the fallout, as I read of, about Rolling Stone's incompetence, as I read about Jackie's misrepresentations, embellishments, or perhaps, quoting Hannah Rosen from Slate here now, or perhaps her fabrication of this story. Some people are going to point to this if it does ultimately unravel, if it is one of those rare anomalous false reports of rape. Right-wingers will hold it up and point to it as evidence that people who claim to have been raped should not be believed because this tiny handful of people have falsely claimed to have been raped. Again, I would look back to my experience and the, the gay community experience and the AIDS community's experience with people who lied about having AIDS in the late 80s and early 90s and they were – Rare, rare, and also not held up as proof that nobody who said that they had AIDS had AIDS or that we should not believe people who step forward to say that they had AIDS. We should and we did and we do still, even knowing that there are some people out there who lie. We see this with Munchausen syndrome where people claim that they have cancer, shave their heads, make themselves sick. We don't hold those people up as proof that nobody fucking has leukemia. Or that somebody who comes forward doesn't deserve the benefit of the doubt when your friend says that she has leukemia. Despite the fact that there have been countless cases of people faking cancer, we don't say nobody has cancer. Or that people who say that they have cancer should not be believed. We believe. We default to believe. Because why would somebody lie unless they were crazy or seeking attention? And because some people out there are crazy or seeking attention does not mean that we should default to a posture of disbelief when it comes to HIV AIDS or cancer 
or sexual assault or rape or anything else. But what prompted this, you know, memory about people lying about having AIDS was one of the defenses early on as the UVA story began to unravel is that people said that we should believe Jackie's version of events and perhaps Jackie was traumatized and sometimes people are so traumatized by their experiences of sexual assault or rape that they misremember it or details get conflated or they're so traumatized or shocked or suffering from PTSD that their narrative can become a little unreliable. It doesn't mean that they weren't fucking raped. But a lot of what I was reading was rape is so traumatic and horrible and the stigma and shame are so great that no one would ever lie about this. The stigma and shame and horror of AIDS was so great and yet people lied about it. We should still believe people. We, should, we did then believe people when they came forward and said that they had AIDS. But we do live in a world where some people will lie about anything. And if we become too invested in any one individual's story, if we attach too much importance and weight to it, if that one story unravels, it can threaten the support or sympathy or the stories of all those many more millions of people who are telling the truth. Rape is a huge problem, a cultural problem, a societal problem, criminal justice problem. And one that requires a great deal of work and a really a cultural shift. And I don't think we should bog down or allow this debate to become bogged down on fighting over one person's story, fighting over one example, one narrative, one magazine article. Anyway, I'm spinning my wheels now. Uh, like I said, this is a really complicated issue, really nuanced. It is a minefield that I do not want to drive an SUV through. We're going to have some women on the show at the beginning of the year to talk about the UVA case and talk about what it means and what it does not mean. And I want to emphasize again that it does not mean that false reports of rape are routine or normal or even a high percentage or a tiny percentage, vanishingly small, 2 to 10 percent. And we're going to talk about that in the new year. We're not ducking this issue. I was paying attention, listening, reading and thinking about it. We'll talk about this more in the new year. Coming up in the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, we have Carolyn Hacks, the advice columnist here for the Second Opinion segment, and we have Evan Wolfson, head of Freedom to Marry, one of the authors of the marriage equality movement here in the United States to talk about where we are right now. But first, your calls. Hey, Dan. I am a 22-year-old bisexual female. My boyfriend is a 30-year-old bisexual male. Um, I am his first serious girlfriend. He, uh, we're getting married and we don't really have any other problems other than the fact that he used to have a really bad porn addiction and has come to me with it. It came about because we just weren't having sex as often as anymore. He would get defensive and I was afraid that it was that sort of cheap release of dopamine that was getting in the way. So I supportedly, you know, tried to keep him away from that. Well, he purposely, he did it at his own volition. So it wasn't me forcing him to do anything, but because of him being bisexual and myself, I feel like he has no release because we want to try to stay monogamous, but sometimes I'll find twink porn on his computer, which is only fair. But at the same time, it's like a little bit disrespectful when you're trying to stay on this regime. So I don't know if I'm being unfair by barring him or trying to push him in a direction, but I just also want him to find a way to express that other half of his sexuality that by being in a relationship with me 
it's impossible. So, I mean, I don't know what to do. So your boyfriend, uh, soon to be husband, you say, and you use the past net, used to have a, a porn problem, used to be addicted to porn, used to consume so much porn for that dopamine release, although you do also get that dopamine release of that natural high when your favorite TV show comes on the air, or you eat your favorite food. So that association between addiction and porn and that release of happy chemicals in your brain is kind of baloney, right? But anyway, you know, he used to watch too much porn, consume too much porn to the detriment of your sexual relationship, your sexual connection. He was choosing porn over you. And that was bad. And he's pulled away from the porn buffet. He's pushed back from the porn buffet and is consuming a lot less porn or has stopped. That was your agreement. Apparently stopped consuming porn. Uh, and I'm going to assume, because you don't mention that it's an ongoing problem, that the problem you know, of you being sexually neglected passed, that this isn't a problem anymore, that you don't feel sexually neglected and the porn isn't, hasn't been an issue, hasn't been all-consuming for him. And yet now you've uncovered evidence that he's watching a little bit of porn. He's watching some twink porn. Is it a problem? Are you being neglected? Is he now in control of the amount of porn that he's eating? Is he now not throwing himself into it to the exclusion of all other sexual interests, pursuits, pleasures? Uh, is, he not, is he not neglecting you and just watching a little bit of porn? If that's the case, if he's just watching a little bit of porn, it's not a problem. I think, though, based on his history with porn and the fact that it has been a problem in the past, that you have a right to just cough that up. You have a right to mention that. I don't think you want to be in a position for the rest of your life, your lives together, for the life of this marriage, of policing his erotics, of policing his porn consumption. But I do think that because it has been a problem in the past, you have a right to go to him and seek some assurances that, oh, you're looking at porn again. That's fine. It's obviously not a problem. Our sexual connection's good. I stumbled over it. I just want to like throw it out there on the table that now that you're looking at porn again, in moderation, all things in moderation, including moderation, I'm out of town for a weekend and you want to have a porn binge, I guess. That's fine. But you know that this spun out of control for you once. So be careful. Be considerate. Be conscientious as you dip a toe back into this so you don't lose yourself in it again. That's all you got to say. Say that to him. Don't say you may not, you may never. Don't set yourself up as his web filter or his porn police person. That is a losing game. And you don't want to be in that position. You don't want to be the cop. You want to be the girlfriend and the wife and the partner. And finally, I don't think this is just about allowing someone who's bi to have his boys on the side virtually in porn. That itch that you can't scratch for him, right? Because all people, whether they're bisexual or monosexual, desire a little variety. And porn is a safe outlet for people who wish to remain monogamous but also wish to have a little variety in their lives, a little vicarious variety. And we should all, even if, especially those of us who want a monogamous relationship, instead of regarding porn as some sort of threat, porn for a lot of people is what makes monogamy possible. Because they can stay monogamous, they can get their need for variety met without actually physically cheating on their partner. Porn, if you think about it the right way, is the monogamist's friend, not the monogamist's enemy, bi or mono. Hey, Dan. I'm a 45-year-old straight male, and I'm relatively new to dating because I was married for 15 years and with that woman for 17 years. So I just started dating maybe two years ago after um, – basically a couple long-term girlfriends and then being married. 
And my question has to do with the concept of exclusivity. It was kind of a shock to me as I entered the dating world that people date multiple people at once, and that's certainly fun. But then the question I have is, at what point does one become exclusive? And is it assumed you're non-exclusive until you've reached that point? Because as I've been dating, um, I just happily date along, uh, taking sort of a shotgun approach to dating, seeing multiple people, and usually one person rises to the top and becomes more special. And then maybe, you know, four to six months in, these women say to me, hey, are you seeing other people? And I say, well, yeah, we never talked about being exclusive. And then they get really pissed off at me. And am I supposed to be doing something different? Are we supposed to talk about this ahead of time? Are they supposed to bring it up? Am I supposed to bring it up? It's all kind of a mystery to me and I can't get straight answers from anybody. I've recently started seeing a woman who I really like um, and she has long-term potential. And a lot of my female friends are saying, well, are you exclusive yet? I said, well, we haven't talked about it. They're like, well, good, keep your options open. And I'm just worried that this will be another replay of, you know, in a few months, she'll say, are you saying, seeing other people? And I'll say, yeah, because I can't lie. And then um, it'll blow up in my face like it has in the past. There are a few ways to understand the question, are you seeing other people in a relationship where you have not yet had that conversation about whether you're going to date each other exclusively? Uh, you can understand that question as the request to become exclusive when someone says, are you seeing other people? They may mean, I would like you to stop seeing other people. I would like us to become exclusive. And one possible legitimate answer to that question, are you seeing other people at that moment, if you would consider becoming exclusive with this person, if you would like to be exclusive with this person, one possible answer to are you seeing other people is no, I'm not anymore. But you leave the anymore off that that is – the conversation about exclusivity that you say has not yet happened, this is the opening salvo. This is the first shot in that convo. Are you seeing other people? Well, no, I'm not. Or I have been, you know, I was at the beginning, but you, I feel really strongly about you and I'd like to become exclusive. Like that is the opening gambit in the convo. The convo that you say hasn't, you know, people aren't having it. Well, this is an attempt to have it. And you have been, I think, mishandling your end of that conversation. Because the wrong answer to are you seeing other people is, well, yeah. Because, well, yeah. And maybe you said things in addition to that or didn't quite say it that way. But, well, what you, well yeah, kind of says is, yeah, who are you? And you're good and you're nice, but you're not it. You're not the one I'm looking for. And if that person could be it, if they are the one you're looking for and the one is a myth, blah, blah, blah. Everybody knows how I feel about the one. But if they are the 0.67 that you could round the fuck up to one – then the proper response may be, are you seeing other people? No, I'm not. Not anymore. Not after today. If what you're saying is you would like to see each other exclusively, I am down with that. I would like that too. But there's a defter way to handle that. Then, <laughs> yeah, of course I'm seeing other people, aren't you? Because maybe she hasn't been seeing other people and maybe she assumed that you weren't either. And that may have been a faulty assumption on her part based on the way people date and people can date more than one person at a time and people are trying to figure out who they want to be with. And sometimes people meet a couple of people at once, date a couple of people at the same time, and then they pick one if they are monogamists. So my advice to you going forward is to have conversations earlier in the relationship and say, I'm seeing other people. I assume you are too right now and that's fine. And we can have a conversation about exclusivity down the road as we see you know, how strongly we feel about each other. Or you can just wait for the – 
hey, I'm wondering, have you been seeing other people? Question and answer it with a, no, I'm not anymore. Leaving off the anymore. And that is the moment you upgrade it to exclusivity. And then when you're married and you have a couple of kids five or ten years down the road, maybe you can have a drunken conversation about the fact that the first six months you guys were dating, you were dating other women here and there too. And she may out herself as having been dating other guys also at that same time. Hi, Dan. Uh, I am a 27-year-old female. And my partner and I have been together for about six years now. We have two children, the youngest one being nine months old. The problem that I have is that recently um, my partner, who is um, in his mid-30s, purchased a building. And we live on the second floor, and his mother lives on the first now, after I had my daughter, my sex drive went crazy, um, and I really um, want to have sex with him all the time, and I think that he is so attractive. But since his mother uh, moved in, which would have been about two or three months ago, um, everything has kind of died. Um, I don't want to do anything. Um, I feel like I'm being dragged down um, because we interact so much and um, she requires so much of his time and attention and the building uh, that was recently purchased required so much time and attention that I feel like our our sexual drive has faded completely. Um, and I'm terrified to think that this is going to be a long-term thing. And whenever I try to talk to him about it, there is no response. He gets defensive. He thinks that I'm attacking him and his mother and the building. Um, when in reality, I just want to like have a healthy, good sex life with him for as long as I possibly can. Um, but it's getting to the point, although it's only been a short time, where we barely talk in good terms uh, because it always turns into an argument about his mother. I'm curious as to whether you misspoke uh, when you recorded your question because you were unpacking this scenario, moving into this house, uh, two, two apartments, mom in the building and your boyfriend of many years, your two small children and, and suddenly the sex dries up. But you're super horny but you said, I don't want to do anything now that mom's in the house. Maybe you meant he doesn't want to do anything now that mom's in the house and you're feeling frustrated uh, or if the problem is that with mom in the house, you can't fuck or don't want to fuck, that, that's – different. And so I'm a little unsure of how to proceed with the advice here and I couldn't get you on the phone, but I'm going to give it my best shot. You have two small kids. One's nine months old. You're super horny. You've just moved into this house. Typically in this situation, uh, you know, a couple opposite sex couple, two small kids, one's still an infant. It's the wife. It's the girlfriend. It's the person who just gave birth who has no interest in sex. And I have to rush in to tell the husband or the boyfriend masturbate for a while, chill the fuck out, you know, just spat a human out of her pussy, like give her a fucking break. And a lot of women aren't very up for sex or interested in sex or interested in physical contact or intimacy at this stage. And you should have known that signing up to have a baby together. So you have signed up, particularly if you've made a monogamous commitment, you've signed up for a period of sexual deprivation, which you can self medicate with your own right or left hand. Jack the fuck off and don't be a pest and try to be patient. And it will come roaring back as long as you don't let resentment curdle the relationship, right? Well, perhaps in this situation, the new house is the baby and the person who's feeling stressed out and overwhelmed is your boyfriend. 
and he's not really up for sex right now and the presence of mom in the building is irrelevant. You say that there's so much work that he has to do. He has to pay all the attention to his mother. He has to pay all the attention to the building. If you bought, if you guys bought a building together, if he bought a building that's in disrepair that needs tons of work and he's holding down a job and coming home and tending to this great big baby that all of you live in, his kids, his girlfriend and his mother, maybe he's just fucking spent and you're going to have to masturbate for a while until he gets a grip on the building and the situation. You're taking care of the kids and you're horny and he's taking care of mom in this building and he's not feeling it right now. And you're the one who's going to have to be patient and not let resentment curdle your relationship with the father of your children. If the problem is he doesn't want to have sex. If the problem is that you don't want to have sex because mom's in the building, well, then you are being kind of shitty, right? If you're withholding sex or claiming that you don't want to have sex or honestly genuinely feeling that you don't want to have sex because his mother might hear you or mom's in the building, mom's in the house, you are in a way leveraging uh, sex against him to dislodge his mother from this building. Maybe you don't like it. You don't even say that she's a shitty person or she's terrible to you. She's just present. And if that's – not killing your libido because you're horny but making you unwilling to have sex with your partner because he's paying attention to his mother, that's kind of shitty. And you're going to have to accept her presence and accept her importance and I think you have a right to claim primacy if you are his partner, if you are the one that he is going to spend his life with. You are or should be and should be made to feel more important to him than his mom. That is adult life and parents have to accept that relegation to second place gracefully and graciously so as not to fuck up their children's relationships. But he is allowed to pay attention to his mom. He's allowed to love his mother. He should pay attention to his mom. He should love his mother. It's a good sign for you and your relationship. It's a good sign for the kind of parent he's going to be, kind of father he's going to be to his kids if he is good and decent and kind to his mother proportionately. He's not – wrapped around her finger and wrapped up in her apron strings and all those other cliches. So wish I could have gotten you on the phone. We could have unpacked this at greater length. You might have to regard the building as the baby that distracts your partner for a while and leads you to be unfulfilled and your needs unmet and you need to be gracious and patient just as I would advise the husband to be in a situation where there was a new baby in the house, not a new baby that was the house but in the house. And if it's you withholding sex in an effort to get him to chuck his mother out on the street, you need to knock that shit off. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old straight male, and honestly, I'm calling you because I'm desperate. I've fallen in love with a girl who comes from a very conservative Christian background, as I do. For the most part, I've rejected things of the faith because I've seen through the transparency and the complete load of bullshit that it all is, but I'm desperate. I've had sex with my girlfriend perhaps a dozen times, and in the last couple of months, she's flat out said she's just not ready. I love her, I respect her, and I want to be patient and wait for her, but I'm dying here. It's just absolutely brutal. My sex drive is going insane. I just got back from a party tonight, and I've had girls all over me. I'm, as far as I go physically, I'm very attractive and very easy to get along with. I've had dozens of girls show interest, and tonight especially, it was really hard. 
keeping distance. I don't want to cheat on my girlfriend. She's not open to the idea of a monogamous relationship. And honestly, I just want her, but she doesn't want sex. So if I follow correctly, you are in an exclusive sexual relationship with someone who does not want to have sex with you? Correct, yeah. And you say that your girlfriend, after having sex with you a dozen times, now decides she wants to wait. What is she waiting for? Uh, primarily in her eyes, marriage. You're 23 years old. Do you want to marry her? Honestly, I do. We get along so well. Um, okay. And I, I basically spent the first six, seven months of our relationship without having sex at all. And I was, you know, I was totally fine with that. But kind of once, you know, you break the ice there, it's harder to wait after that. Right. And now that you're, now that you're not having sex together and you're not having sex with anyone else, uh, mm-hmm. are, are you kissing? Are you rolling around? Are you guys, you know, some people define waiting as everything but vaginal. Are you guys having oral sex? Are you having anal sex? Actually, no, nothing like that. No, she's very um, conservative with, that stuff. And frankly, I'm unable to get off unless we do have actual vaginal penetration. Uh-huh. Exactly. Wait, wait, you're unable. But you can't climax for masturbation even alone. You have to like go find. No, I, I can from my, from myself, okay. but not with her. Mm-hmm. So that's actually something we sat down yesterday, in fact, and we started working on that and trying, I guess, different techniques with oral mass, mutual masturbation. And yeah, yesterday was a really good day. I was able to get off for the first time in months. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, well, good. I'm glad. And get off with your own hand or get off by her hand? Um, basically brought myself right to the point, and then she could finish everything off. Okay. Well, that's legit. Uh, that's actually sometimes my advice for people who have difficulty transitioning to somebody else being in charge of their dick. You know, it can be hard for people who've masturbated a lot and all exactly. men have to like have somebody else at the controls. And if you get yourself to that point of orgasmic inevitability, you can retrain your dick to like let somebody else take charge. And that point at which you, ha- you hand it over can come sooner and sooner, earlier and earlier in the process if you keep, you know, working on it. You, my thing with, with your predicament is you're 23 years old. Do you really mm-hmm. want to get married at 23 or 24 under a kind of duress because you're being pressured? Not necessarily. And actually the decision to kind of cut things off was half mine because after we do, she often feels really guilty. It's like mainly partially for religious reasons, but the main reason is she doesn't want to disappoint her family. Okay. Well, are you, are you having sex in front of her family? No, not at all. Are you sending fact, video clips? Are you guys posting things to Xtube where her dad <laughs> might find them? No, definitely not. Does she live with her parents? She does right now while she's going to school. Mm-hmm. And one of the big things is um, I have a horrible, shitty relationship with my family. Mm-hmm. My dad's like really uber conservative extremist pastor, and I've kind of broken a lot of ties there. But she still has a very good relationship with her family. And I don't want to put that kind of stress on it of her having to constantly keep this guilt and hidden thing, even just internally inside her head. Mm-hmm. God bless religion. Let's, just, let's pause here for a moment to acknowledge all the wonderful things religion does for people's relationships and their families. <laughs> like destroy oh, doesn't them. It ever. Like, you know, I recognize yep. that religion can do a lot of good in the world, that, you know, religion can 
be a motivator for some people to give money to orphans or to go fucking do something to help another human being. But often, you know, what I see in my line of work is religion destroying relationships, destroying families, children being destroyed by religious parents, children becoming estranged from religious controlling batshit parents, children being racked by guilt about their natural sexual urges and desires and activities because of somebody's imaginary sky friend. Or somebody's exactly. ideas, their pinched ideas about what their imaginary sky friend thinks of sex, which this imaginary sky friend gave us, created for us according to them, but then is just itching to destroy us for if we act on these impulses and desires. And it sounds like you're a lovely person. You sound very sensitive and kind. I bet you have a lovely Thank relationship you. with this person. And the only thing creating conflict and problems in this relationship are these arbitrary notions of how sex is supposed to work as opposed to how sex actually does work. Right. And right now that's kind of where we're at. We're just, it, it's great because we are, um, I'm a person who often bottle things up when I'm upset or hurt about things. And in the last week, we've kind of really been pushing to go outside our comfort zones with sharing and just, you know, talking to each other about what we're really feeling. Mm-hmm. And that's just done wonders for opening things up and, you know, okay, well maybe, because if you do feel guilty about this, maybe we won't try that right now, but we'll try this other route or something like that. Right, but but you know, and, I, I can't imagine if she's worried about her parents knowing that she's having penis and vagina intercourse, that her parents will be ecstatic that she's only having oral sex. Oh, okay, your yeah. boyfriend's coming in your mouth and not your vagina. Oh, phew. <laughs> like that—that's a distinction without a difference for the sexually conservative parent. Distinction without a difference, right? And it's that exactly. kind of like, and that's kind of the strange part where I don't fully understand her perspective, but I, you know, I respect her for having maybe that for temporary for that one boundary. It's a kind of bargaining and rationalization and, and negotiation with really kidnappers, right? Not parents, but kidnappers controlling kidnappers who want to dictate her life to her. And you know, I'm not talking to her, so I can't unpack this first. I'm only going to unpack it with you. Are you willing to marry this person at age 23 or 24 to get back into her vagina? Are you ready for marriage at this stage of life? Um, you know, even before we stopped having sex, I was already looking at picking out a ring. This just kind of threw a wrench in the scenario because it made me take a step back and say, well, hold on. Am I just getting married to continue this or Mm -hmm. is this the woman I love? And right now I believe that I still want to marry this woman, but you know, I'm rethinking a lot of things. Um, I, you know, as you said, only 23, 24, still extremely young and, I'm not in any rush whatsoever. And, you know, as long as we get to work these things through and the fact that we can, this is the, I guess the biggest fight slash difficulty we've had in our relationship so far. Mm-hmm. And if we can work past this, I definitely see a lot of hope for the future. Okay. The other thing I think you should talk to her about when you're talking about your future together, and if you guys can have a relationship, a sexual relationship that's satisfying for you, that's everything but vaginal intercourse. And I think there's way too much emphasis and importance placed on vaginal intercourse. I know guys in long-term gay relationships who never have anal sex and they're fine and satisfied. And I think two straight people can be together forever and never have vaginal and be fine and satisfied or together temporarily or, or, or together and for a while only have other things in vaginal and be satisfied and happy together. So I'm not saying that if you can't get vaginal out of her, you should end the relationship. But you know something you need to think about is somebody – and you need to unpack with her and really run her to ground about is are these hang-ups going to negatively affect our sex life and our marriage over the long haul? Mm-hmm. These sort of arbitrary distinctions, these worries, like are we going to have a free and joyous 
sexual connection or are you always going to be imagining your parents standing at the foot of the bed scowling? Right. Because that kind of sexual relationship and marriage, like if she has these ideas, like I'm going to wait now because mommy and daddy, like ask her, you know, once we're married, are you going to have some like Madonna whore bullshit about the kind of sex married women have versus the kind of sex girlfriends have? And what kind of right. impact is, you know, are we going to eradicate the sex negativity that was stuffed down our throats by our families? It's arbitrary bullshit, not a part of all Christian faiths or traditions or all faiths or traditions generally. This arbitrary sex negativity, are we going to root it out so that we can have a joy and, sexual connection? Or are we going to succumb to this and is it going to destroy our marriage and our relationship yeah. over the long haul? And I guess that's my biggest concern at this point right now because I've heard dozens Pretty much, I've had about 12 of my close Christian friends all get married this last year. Best man twice, photographer once, just Mm -hmm. going to all these weddings. And truth be told, one of the top three determining factors for them is they just want to have sex with a clean conscience. And that's a terrible reason to get married. It's horrible. I want to have sex right now. It is. I want to blow load right now, so I'm going to make a five or six decade commitment right now to this person that I barely know. Exactly. And that's probably my biggest concern at this point is I hear so many people say, you know, this magic, well, once we're married, it's going to get better button. And nope. yeah, that, that just I, makes I'm, me instantly paranoid when I hear that. I'm here from the future to tell you that that is not how it, <laughs> it <works>. doesn't. <laughs> right. No, and yeah. You've been married for what? 18 years now? Uh, almost 20. Oh, congratulations. Well, thank you. It'll be 20 yeah. in January. I just started listening to the podcast. I don't know about about six months ago, and I've heard pretty much every episode. I went back to <laughs> the, the old one. Well, then you know how I feel about getting married at 23. You know how I feel about Absolutely. getting married under duress. Right? Absolutely. But if you, can, mm-hmm. uh, if you can take the duress out of this, if you love this girl, I don't want to, you know, to the marriage of true minds or the potential marriage of true minds, introduce any discord. If you can remove the duress from the situation, if the rolling around, mutual masturbation, oral sex is a satisfying sex life for you while you continue to date, even perhaps after you're engaged as you move toward marriage and like allowing her to take vaginal intercourse off the menu to, to salve her conscience. If that's something that you can live with and be happy, then, then fucking go for it. At the same time, continue to have a conversation with her about sex and about joy and about your relationship and about getting away from this oppressive bullshit that both of your families have stuffed down your throats because that is a ticking time bomb that will explode your marriage. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for calling, Dan. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I've already tried to start, I guess, start the practice of putting your advice into <laughs> practice. Well, you good know, luck. I hope it works for you. I, I've heard from a lot of people who say that they've like followed my advice and it's really helped and improved their relationships. So uh, I hope it works for you. Individual results may vary, of course, but I hope it works for you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for calling. I really appreciate you taking the time. Sure thing. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old straight woman dating a 47-year-old man in an open marriage. We've been together for about three months, and we adore each other in every way. We have a really great emotional relationship and an awesome sex life. When we're in the sack, anything goes. We're in this kind of some out-of-the-ordinary sexual interest, things like water sports, sub-dom stuff, great fantasy, fisting, etc. Basically, we'll try anything, and we enjoy every minute of it. The reason I'm calling is because last night, my boyfriend revealed that he's bisexual, which I've always sort of suspected just based off of some tendencies that I've picked up from him during sex. This is completely fine with me. I actually think it's kind of hot. He then continued to unpack for me all the sexual interests he has that I was previously unaware of. First, he mentioned that he's interested in pegging, which I'm totally down to do. I'm not uncomfortable with that at all. 
Then he mentioned bringing another dude into the mix and said that he wants me to watch him getting fucked by another guy, sucking another guy's dick, come swapping between me and my boyfriend. Um, he wants to eat another guy's come out of me. He wants me to eat come out of him, etc. I'm definitely happy uh, to do all of this with him. Um, it would make me happy to make him happy. The thing is, I've never really done anything like that before, and I'm sort of just overwhelmed by all of these new requests. Um, my question is, how do I sort of attack all of this? Like, where do I even start on making um, this kind of stuff happen? He's a 47-year-old bi guy, newly out to you, and he reveals all of these varsity-level sexual interests, new ones, rolls them out. Not just pegging, but like really well above and beyond the call of any kind of duty stuff like eating somebody else's come out of his ass, which on the safety scale is kind of fucking off the charts, right? And also, you know, if he totally cleans himself out before some guy blows a load in his ass, you're not going to be ingesting feces if you're eating come out of his ass. But rectal mucus and lube and cum, like – that's not a buffet table I would linger over myself, okay? And it's not what I haven't done. But I don't know how he got you guys got from him revealing these crazy and in some quarters really hot and intimate sexual fantasies to you to it being your responsibility to make this stuff happen. How did this become your job at 25 with the 47-year-old guy? How did it become your job to find the dude? to have the three-way with? How is this your job to set all this up? It's his job. Like, let him be in charge of realizing or rolling out these sexual fantasies. He should be bringing this to you, not you have to go find some dude for him. Like, he's in charge. Like, okay, you, he's revealed these sexual fantasies to you. You are willing to perhaps go there. I hope you all get tested. I hope you're all safe. I hope he's on prep if he's going to let guys come in his ass. I hope... You're uh, being safe too as all this unfolds. But it's the onus is on him. His sexual fantasies, he needs to take some responsibility for his sexual fantasies. And if he wants your help in realizing them, that's one thing. But if he's shifted all responsibility onto your shoulders for making this shit happen, that's a little fucked up. And I would, if I were you, bow out if that's how he was making me feel. As much as I like to pretend, as much as I think all advice columnists and advice podcasters, as much as all of us seem to like to pretend that we are the only advice slingers on the planet, that is not true. There are other advice columnists in the world, and I like to have them on this show every once in a while to remind me that I'm not the only one, but also to remind all of you that I am not the only one. Joining us today for Second Opinion is Carolyn Hacks. She is an advice columnist for The Washington Post. She began writing her column Tell Me About It in 1997. It's now known as Carolyn Hacks. No longer tell me about it. Uh, and it's syndicated in more than 200 newspapers. She does a weekly chat at the Washington Post. And she is amazing and funny and really insightful. And I'm so happy to have her on the show today. Hey, Carolyn, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. I don't think I can live up to that. But thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can. Um, we, we, have, well, you know, we have things in common. We're both advice columnists. But also, for a long time, Hey Faggot was the, the greeting that ran at the top of every letter in my column. People addressed me as Hey Faggot. And I dropped that after a while. And a lot of people thought that was the name of the column. Um, and they think I changed the name of the column, and I didn't. But you did change the name of your column. When did Tell Me About It start? When did it become Carolyn Hacks? And how did you get into the advice business? Well, it's the column started in 1997. It I don't remember why, or excuse me, I don't remember when it became Carolyn Hacks. I think we just decided that it sounded 
too teenagery. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I think what happened was when I started writing it, I, I had just turned thirty, and I felt really uncomfortable answering questions from older readers. And so we just sort of ruled that out. It's like, okay, this is out of my comfort zone. We're just going to say this is a column for young people, and I'm going to go ahead. And then, of course, I got old, and all of a sudden, I got much more comfortable talking to. <laughs> <laughs> to people just like me. And so that's when we decided to make the column age grow up a little bit. And so that's why we took away the, the tell me about it. Although, of course, it still exists. I mean, there's some papers that still use it, and we've just given up trying. How did, so you, how did it, you get it, the gig? Do you get the, I, I'm always getting the question from people, I want to write an advice column. How do you get it? How do you, how do you get a column? And I always I, I lucked into it. I met somebody starting a newspaper. I said, you should have an advice column. He said, great, write it. And it was an accident. How did you get it? How did you get the gig? My story is very similar to yours, except instead of um, having somebody say, we need an advice column, I was saying, wow, we need better advice columns because these suck. And <laughs> Would you care to name the ones you think sucked back then? <laughs> uh, no, we're not going to name names, but... We're not going to name names. I don't, you know what? I, I, I probably have off the record enough times that it would, it's probably floating around out there. But it was just, you know, and the thing is, I, I don't really have to say who because they all sucked. And so I just, I just didn't like them. And so I happened to be saying it to an editor who was in a position to do something about it. And I was very lucky. And so I was also professionally restless and kind of mean and um, working at the Washington Post at the time already, so they trusted me, and so there it was. So, so you were angling for the gig yourself. You're like, these suck. I could do better. Let me write an advice column. No, actually, the, the, it was just these suck. And and I was I was actually working on a page with them, and I was talking to the editor, and she was trying to bring in other stuff, and it was I had absolutely no ulterior motives. I was bad mouthing from the purity <laughs> of my heart. <laughs> And and it was one of those things that the minute I said it, she just sort of cocked her head and said, huh. And and nothing really happened. We just we didn't even talk about it. But I came back a day later and I said, you know, that conversation we had yesterday, I said, what if I tried to write one? And she said, you know, she had been thinking along the same lines. You've been giving her advice. You'd been giving her advice about how to run her page and which columns she should write. And then you pivoted to actually writing the advice. Exactly. I couldn't help myself. It was just it was just I'm going to tell you how to run your page. And so. You know, and it's a I, short I jump to telling everybody on earth how to run their lives. Exactly. Yes, it was a natural fit. So speaking <sighs> of telling people how to run their lives, uh, I want you to take a couple of questions from my call bag or my mail bag, uh, and we'll see how you do with the, the Savage Love style. Okay. Because your stuff is much more relationship, right? People who don't know your column, and most people do know your column. You're in more papers than I am. More people know your column than know my column. But what's your usual – stuff what's your what's your meat what's your meat and potatoes i'm i'm very mainstream and i think people definitely edit to fit what they know i can i can cover because i i have to every time i'm writing a column i have to think that somebody's nine-year-old is seeing that on a breakfast table and so i have to i have to write as if this thing is lying around for anybody to see and so i do have to consider some people's sensibilities now so, the, so, the so, hypersensitive ones i enjoy tweaking but um but you're but not covering fist fucking or cuckolding or water sports you know <laughs> and and i lie awake at night weeping for myself but <laughs> yeah i don't <laughs> okay well let's take a couple of questions hi dan i am a 25 year old straight woman and i'm in a long distance relationship My relationship has been for about a year and a half. For six months, we were together in the same city, and since then, we've been trying to see each other every one to two months because we live on different continents. According to him, I'm the first woman he's ever gotten close to, and he's 27 years old. 
There have been some times when I wondered why he seemed so emotionally detached and why it took him so long for him to open up to me. I care about him deeply, but there's one thing that really disturbs me. I met his family for the first time in March. At first, something seemed off, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. When we visited again in April, I realized what it was. His parents, they they don't speak to each other. They're married, they live in the same house, and they're even raising my boyfriend's 14-year-old twin sisters together somehow. But they absolutely do not speak to each other. My boyfriend says he, he knows this isn't normal, and he doesn't know exactly why it happened, but it's been this way since he was about 15, and they've since adapted. I asked why he didn't talk to me about it before, and he said that he didn't know. And, um, yeah, I can see that it's really hard for him to go through, and he's almost taken a fatherly role for his younger sisters. I really can't understand how him and his family live with such an emotionally painful situation. Um, And it really disturbs me to visit with them, but I care for him, and I've developed some relationships with his family members. I can't get over, though, the strangeness at the dinner table when everyone talks to each other except his mother and father. Me and my boyfriend had a long talk about it, but it ended with him feeling sad and getting frustrated with me for asking questions about potential solutions, um, which I would say divorce. Um, He basically said, this is how we live, and you have to accept that. Things are getting serious between us. Uh, And once I finish graduate school, we would like to live closer together, although it's not really certain which one of us will move yet. I have a feeling that he wants to escape this situation, but he can't. So I guess my question for you, Dan, is what exactly am I getting myself into? Uh, How should I deal with this when I see him again at Christmas? And what are the possible effects of this situation on our relationship? Okay, they're on different continents, and that is not as consequential as it used to be. Not in the Facebook, Twitter, uh, Skype, Snapchat era. People on different continents have a much easier time staying in touch these days. Right, but you have somebody with intimacy problems, and his first real relationship is with somebody on a different continent. I mean, come <laughs> on, you've got you've to find that funny. I mean, all right, not funny. Well, funny, tragic, cool, funny, but- sad. Or funny, it's funny or telling. Funny telling. I was going to say funny revealing, but yes, funny telling. And what is it telling us, Carolyn? It, it's telling us that he's he's trying. He knows he needs to be more open. That that there's that there's this 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 realm of happiness that hasn't been available to him, and he knows he needs to go there. But he's going there in the only way he knows how, which is at at, at very dramatic arm's length. So her question and, is her, her worry is what am I getting myself into now that I've met his crazy family and his parents literally do not speak to each other and this guy's having to play kind of a parental role for his younger sisters because his parents are so dysfunctional or crazy and the relationship is so toxic she wonders what am I getting myself into and in you know all your years of experience giving people advice what do you think she's getting herself into with a guy in this situation Well she's getting into somebody who will always speak intimacy as a second language I mean it's it's he may he may work very hard to to be better to overcome his family, to open up, to trust somebody, um, to realize that there's something really great available if he can if he can just drop his guard down. But I don't think it's ever going to be a hundred percent. I think it's always going to be this other language that he that he has to 
think about before he speaks. But there are some people who speak English as a second language who are better English speakers, are better with the language than some native speakers, right? True, so, so and, and he could get effort, there. He could get there if he's made this effort, right? It's more of a conscious effort to be emotionally available for him, so maybe he's more conscientious about his emotional availability? Well, but she's going to have to see that. I mean, I think if I were, if I were, if she were sitting next to me and if she were my friend and if she were my sister and I was trying to talk about this with her, I would say you've got to look for progress. Mm-hmm. You've got to look for effort. And if she's got effort and if she's got progress, then, then great things could come of this. But if, if he's, I mean, he's not there yet. When they had the conversation, he had to, he couldn't, he had to stop. Like, mm-hmm. I can't have this conversation. And so he's definitely got a long way to travel, but but if he's trying and if he wants this badly enough, it could be great. But, so you're not telling her to run screaming? No. Not yet. You know, again, not yet. Again, if she's, if she's seeing progress, if he's kind of – if this is as far as he's come and nothing has improved in the last year or so, then I would run screaming. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's got to want this really badly for it to work for her. But there are some people, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not second guessing you because I actually agree with everything that you've said and that uh, he speaks emotional intimacy as second language is really – so deft. It's actually so you. That's what I would expect to see in your column. It's so genius. <laughs> um, that there are people from shitty, crazy, dysfunctional families who are good partners who who get away from that and, and can see the dysfunction for what it was and want the opposite and go get it and, and make sure that they themselves are the opposite or almost in a way policing themselves for evidence of dysfunction. And they can be very good partners as long as they're not paralyzed by that. Right. Again, that's why I'm saying look for look for effort, look for desire, look for progress. How long should she give him? I don't have a timetable here. If if there's no movement and she's not happy with what she has, then has then it's over now. If it's moving, if he's trying, if he's making an effort and there is improvement, then she stays with it as long as she's happy. And you know, at some point she'll have to make a decision. Okay, is this you know is this good enough now, um, or am I just constantly waiting for it to get better, which isn't fair to him. But I don't think she's at that point yet. Okay. Well, that was one right over the plate for you. That was right out of the, mm-hmm. the Carolyn Hacks wheelhouse. I don't know how that person wound up asking me that question. It's not a fist fucking question. Now we have one that's more out of the Savage Love universe for you. Hi, Dan. I'm a bisexual polyamorous female in my 30s. I live with my male primary partner of two years, and I have a secondary boyfriend for six months who also has a primary girlfriend of his own. And I also have a girlfriend of three months who has a primary boyfriend of her own. Everyone overall has healthy relationships and generally get along successfully. A few weeks ago, I finally introduced my girlfriend to my secondary boyfriend after speaking highly of both of them, plus every other partner had met each other before. The three of us had lunch, and all seemed great, and the next day after that, my girlfriend sends a group email to me and my secondary boyfriend saying that she felt objectified and that her boundaries were pushed because he greeted her hello and goodbye with a half-side hug and a short peck on the cheek. I was there and saw that it was a platonic reading only. I also understand how easy it is as a woman to feel boundaries being pushed by affection from new men, as I've experienced that myself. The issue was the way she communicated this that seemed like finger-pointing and that she didn't trust me enough to tell me before group emailing. Also, my girlfriend and I have taken sexy photos of ourselves, and we both consented to send them to our men, so I wasn't prepared for her to feel offended by my secondary boyfriend greeting her the way he did. I spent hours talking with each of them in person and validated their feelings in the best way I knew how. My secondary boyfriend was upset and surprised and responded to the group email very defensively by saying, quote unquote, relatively, I know what to say. I don't know what to say. I did nothing wrong, but it won't happen again because I don't want to have personal contact with you. 
I was still able to stay neutral, call this a miscommunication, and they don't have to like each other, but it would be great if they agreed to disagree. I told them honestly and as objectively as possible how I observed the interaction and how the emails came across. This was difficult, but I tried to be as genuine as diplomatic as possible. Now I'm left with my boyfriend thinking that my girlfriend is crazy and a ticking time bomb of hair-trigger responses, and my girlfriend thinks my secondary boyfriend is a privileged male asshole. I'm sure that there are some truths to both of these opinions, but I love them both, and I get no one is perfect. My question to you is, Dan, did I handle the situation as well as I could have? Was my girlfriend being crazy, and did my secondary boyfriend act like an asshole? How can I best handle communication between metamors in the future when there is a conflict? Thanks, Dan. Do you get a lot of polyamorous questions at Carolyn Hacks? I don't. I don't get a lot of them, but what I do get is a lot of polyamorous feedback, which is, ooh, you forgot to include us in this, in your answer. Like, you forgot to think. And, of course, I've gotten much better at it because um, I do tend to give a more mainstream answer. Mm-hmm. And I do have to realize that, that my answers have to cover people who have very different wiring. And so I've gotten better. But I, I, I generally, if I cover something that, that gets a little bit too... Um, too straight ahead. Uh, people will write in and say, don't forget about us. Right. And I try to do that too. So, you know, I say some people have, you know, partner or partners, even just that parenthes- open parentheses as close parentheses after partner that can satisfy the uh, polythought police who do rattle around out there, making sure that they are included and rightly so. But let's talk about this poly yeah. person's dilemma. Had you ever heard the expression metamor? No, I have not heard that one. I hadn't heard it. I actually had to go look that up. Even though I know a lot of poly people, I have poly people on the show all the time to to give advice and also poly people. I had to look that up. That is the relationship. You know, your paramour is your, you know, your lover. A metamour is the relationship between two people who are lovers with one person, but not lovers with each other. So the metamours in this case are the secondary boyfriend and the girlfriend who are both in a relationship with this woman but not in a relationship with each other and after that one lunch meeting in conflict with each other. So Carolyn, what should she do? Well, she asked if she handled it correctly and and all I could think was no. You know, she handled it like somebody who is so used to managing and juggling and covering all these needs and keeping it all straight and really there was one answer to her complaint which was, I'm really sorry to hear that. To the girlfriend? Done. The girlfriend, yes. When she said, when she said, I felt this, I felt he I felt ob- mine, you objectified just, and because he kissed my right, cheek. Right, I felt objectified. And was, I'm really sorry to hear that. You know what? It, it validates it. It doesn't say, he didn't objectify you, which of course you don't want to do because she feels that way. Fine, she feels that way. But the thing is, she didn't have to solve it. Okay. She didn't have to get to the bottom of it. She didn't have to soothe anybody's feelings. She, all she had to say was, yeah, I'm really sorry to hear that. But even if he did objectify her, she had, according to the caller, they had taken dirty pictures of each other and sent them to him and her main boy and her number one boyfriend who hardly comes in for a mention in the call that they had already <laughs> sort of participated in their objectification willingly and, and happily. That, of course, he viewed her as partly objectified her, and I don't think objectification in all cases is necessarily bad. We kind of all want to be objectified a little bit by the people that yeah. are attracted to us. At times, you want objectification to be a switch that can turn on and off. You know, Sometimes you want to be wanted. Yeah. But she'd already like sent dirty pictures to him of herself. Of course, he would feel that maybe a hug or peck on the cheek wasn't going to be crossing a line that had already been blown away when they were sexting. But I, again, it, you didn't even need that. You didn't even need that. It was so out there that, that just, I mean, if you meet somebody's 
uncle and they come in and they give you, you know, the little half hug and the kiss on the cheek. It can be cultural. It's, it's within the range of a normal greeting. And you just, so you can't do anything about that. And it, and it wasn't even her problem to solve. Mm-hmm. This is between them. They don't even have to like each other, but she wants them to. Fine, I understand that. It does make things easier. And this is a woman who really, really needs things to be easier. But I think she needlessly complicated the situation by trying to, you know, talking for an hour with each of them. I mean, really, you just say, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. To both of them. Well, you don't even say it to him. I, I No, I think he has the right to feel attacked. She, the, the girlfriend sent this email accusing him of... Oh, that's right. Of that's objectifying true. Yeah. her and making her feel uncomfortable. And all he did was give her this thing that you you rightly point out was in the range of normal greetings. And she sent an email to all involved accusing him of being a lech and a creep. That's that right. I, I, I forgot that, that she complained to him directly. I thought it was – I was thinking of it as complaining to the the central character. But, yeah, yeah, it's just I, – I, again, I don't think that she had to do anything. Now, for his part, you go to him and you say, that – I don't know what she was thinking. That was totally out of left field for me. You know, I just, I'm sorry you got that. I'm sorry you got that kind of blowback. And because I'm more prescriptive, I would say you break up with the girlfriend. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> a level of, again, this is a level of crazy that you just don't need. But, but that's, you know what, that's, I'm talking about strictly how do you handle this specific situation. You don't give the complainer any traction. That was just, okay, you know what, I'm not going to disagree with you because it's an opinion, it's a feeling, but I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm simply going to validate it and not give it any more. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. I think, you're, I think you're recommending stopping short of validation. You're not validating it, you're saying, you're acknowledging it. Oh, you're having a feeling. I, I can see that. You're not, That's but true. You're not, I, I, would say, I would say you're not invalidating it. Right, but you're not giving Don't it the invalidate outcome. invalidate it. But yes, you know, you have this feeling and I am acknowledging it. And we're both being very good uh, non-polyamorous here by not uh, sort of talking about how poly seems to attract people who are into the idea of not just having you know many sex partners or even a lot of sex or very amazing sexual life, but a lot of drama. That well, that's what, but that's what, I mean. That's what I said at the very very beginning was this is somebody who is so accustomed to you know managing and 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 coordinating and juggling and pleasing and it's just you know wow that becomes a habit. And and maybe the habit was there before all the acquisition of all the various partners, but you know that that does seem to be the the mo is is you know I am going to be deeply involved in managing all of these relationships when you know I, again we could have a whole conversation about about one good reason not to be poly is just way way complicated. I don't know. I just, I just, I don't have the. Do you have the energy to manage all that? I don't know if I have the energy to manage it, it, but I think the important thing for a lot of poly people to take away is even people who are in, you know, one-on-one relationships, you can't make everybody happy. Even in a like just a couple, they both can't make each other happy all the time. So your default right. setting, if you have multiple partners, can't be. I have to keep everybody happy, and I have to problem solve for everybody. Sometimes you have to like, oh yeah, that like you've said, like yeah, I acknowledge that. That yeah, you felt that way. Hmm. But I can't. Hmm. I can't fix it. I think her problem is she's running around trying to fix it. Yeah, and she can't definitely. fix this. Which is which is right back into my wheelhouse. Right. By the way, how so? Go go <laughs> unpack that. What do you mean? Well, as I say that that when you're talking about questions that are in my wheelhouse, the I mean probably one of the central tenets of what I talk about is that you can't fix other people. You can't be everything to other people. You can't please everybody. You you can only take care of yourself and govern your own behavior and respond to others as you. As, as it, in a way that makes sense for you. And it doesn't matter what the, and this is something I've been saying for years, it doesn't matter what the specifics are. That general baseline truth stays intact. So before we let you go, real quick, 
you've been doing this since 1997. I've been doing this since 1991. How long can we keep doing this? <laughs> I don't know. It's such a sweet gig. Well, it is a sweet gig, you know. And but it, it was funny. The uh, I, I I don't know how much you follow professional football, but Tom Brady said at the beginning of the season that he's going to retire when he sucks. When he starts to suck, he'll retire. <laughs> and, I've, and it's funny because I have, I've actually said a version of that all along. Like, and I've told my editors and stuff, like, when I start to suck, tell me so that I can quit. And then I realized there's some people who thought I sucked like the first time I put a word on paper. So it's not as I don't have stats to tell me like a, like a quarterback does. Yeah, that would be a problem so for I'm, me too because I get emails every day from people telling me I suck at this and I should stop and have. Oh yeah, to start. you know, yeah, I get to, you have no business doing this job. I mean, how you got into it? And it's it's just it's it's delightful. It's usually back to back with somebody who says you have changed my life for the better. Which always makes it more fun, but um, I'm, I'm relying on the people around me to tell me when I suck. Well, I, so I, that's my answer. I think even if I do suck, even if I become, even if the emails are all you suck instead of half you suck, I will keep doing it. It's just too sweet a gig. Like this gig, uh, wait, that's they will, true. If, if they keep paying you, right? They'll pry it out of know. my cold dead hands, just like they did Ann Landers. We should revisit this in about 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> Carolyn Hacks, her column called Carolyn Hacks in 200 papers. Her home base is the Washington Post. Uh, she does a Friday web chat there that you should look up. And her column's really great. It's one of the ones I read all the time and I lurk uh, because I'm a fan of the genre and not just uh, an idiot practitioner of it. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today, Carolyn. Really appreciate it. Hey, Thank thanks you. for having me. Hey, Dan. I am going to Kentucky from Minnesota where we have gay marriage. And now I looked it up on YouTube and they have gay marriage just like Louisville where I'm moving and a couple other places, including one town where there's like 300 people and surprisingly one gay um, mayor. But my question is just this. If I have gay marriage here, and I know it's federally recognized, so like, is there something I should do that can keep me, I don't know, like legally recognized or something like, I don't know, me and my husband both have different last names. I don't know what Kentucky is going to be like. I've never been there and stuff, but like, should we get his last name as my middle name and my last name is his middle name? I don't know what to do. Um, just in case I get in a car accident on the way to, let's say, the Kentucky Derby and suck my big hat that might get busted up, but I'd feel really terrible if, you know, he died or I died or both of us lost a leg or some shit. So please let me know. Joining me by phone, Evan Wolfson. He's the founder and president of Freedom to Marry. That's the campaign organization uh, that devised a strategy to win marriage nationwide. And Evan is the architect of that strategy. Evan has pursued the goal to get the freedom to marry in all 50 states. As Newsweek put it, Evan is the godfather of gay marriage, the strategist behind the winning strategy that is bringing us legal same-sex marriage all over the United States. And thank you, Evan, for jumping on the phone to help answer this question today. Uh, Good to be with you, Dan. So uh, before we get to the specifics of this question, give us the current state of play. Where are we with marriage equality? Often when you hear people talking about it, they make it sound like it's over and done, like we've won it and we can move on. And I don't think that's true. Yeah, no, look, there's no question we are winning, but winning is not won and it's not a done deal until it's done. We have won the freedom to marry in 35 states. 
That's two-thirds of the American people now living in a freedom-to-marry state. The federal government is respecting people's marriages, even in the states that discriminate. But there are still 15 states that do discriminate. And what that means is families are really hurt. Uh, people are denied things that really matter. And even those of us who live in freedom-to-marry states do travel and work and get transferred and have family members in those other states. So even those of us who live in states where we have won are vulnerable because we haven't yet won nationwide. So there's still plenty of work to do to get the job done. And ultimately, the Supreme Court's going to have to weigh in because there is now a conflict at the appellate court level. You have one uh, appellate court uh, saying that the bans on same-sex marriage are constitutional, all others saying they're not, and that kicks it upstairs, right? So we're looking now potentially at that Supreme Court ruling that decides the issue for the country, right? Well, yeah, well, let me correct that just a little bit. The strategy has always been that, you know, that you talked about has always been to build a critical mass of states and a critical mass of support in order to have the Supreme Court bring the country to nationwide resolution. And there's no question that that's what we've been building toward and that's what we're asking for. But, but it is not true that the Supreme Court, quote unquote, has to take a case. Even though there's a conflict in the circuits now, we've won in four of the federal circuits and we lost in one. The court does not have to act, and it doesn't have to do that. What we, we want them to do that. We mm-hmm. want them to take the case and not drag this out because there are marriage cases in these 15 discriminating states that are making their way to other circuits. And what we don't want to do is be racking up a mix of losses and wins and a few more years in which different things can go wrong or different things can happen. And in the meantime, people are hurting. So what we want to do is really underscore that America is ready it's time for the court to act, and there's real urgency in their acting because people need it now, and that's what we're hoping for. We hope in January of 2015 or thereabouts, the court may choose to take a case. That's what we're calling on them to do. It's what we're working for. And then if they do take a case, we're going to obviously create this climate and continue driving the messages that I just talked about in order to shape the maximum climate for them to do what we want, which is to bring the country to nationwide resolution. But nothing is a given. The court doesn't have to do it. They're the Supreme Court. (laughs) That's why we need to do everything we can to encourage them to do the right thing. Uh, I'm a Catholic and a pessimist, so let's worst-case scenario disorder this for just a minute. I have worst-case scenario disorder. It's a terrible uh, (laughs) syndrome that runs in my family. Um, if the Supreme Court were to take this case and rule against us, that would not roll marriage back in marriage equality states. Is that correct? It would just we'd just leave us with this patchwork where some states you can be married if you're a same-sex couple. Some states you can't. Some states it's dangerous for same-sex married couple to travel to. Some states it isn't. Isn't that correct? Well, I'm an ask-for-what-you-want guy, so I'm not going to play this game for too long, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, indulge you, I'll indulge you a little bit, but then want to get back on what we need to do in order to get what we want, rather than worry about all the things that aren't what we want. But, but the answer to your question, you know, which, is, which truly would be a worst-case scenario, would be that if the court ruled against us, it wouldn't undo the marriages that have taken place. People would be legally married, but it would call into question. It would create some murkiness in some of the wins that we've delivered in many, in some of these states. And it would leave the country, as you absolutely rightly said, as a patchwork. And it would also take away, at least for a period of time, the engine of undoing that patchwork, which is the courts. Mm -hmm. And we would be pushed back into, at least for a period of time, the need to, 
fight state by state uh, in in some challenging terrain where we'd have to build to ballot measures as we had to do in Washington state and others. And that's not what we want. What we want now is to close the deal. And so let's get back to talking about really, instead of worrying about the worst case, let's focus on the case at hand, which is we have this opportunity to continue driving this this national narrative and this state-by-state set of conversations that reassures the court that they can do the right thing and that underscores the urgency of them needing to do the right thing. And that's what the work at hand is, and that's why we're not done. And it's not just about sitting and watching and waiting to see what the lawyers do or what the courts do. All of us need to be in there driving these, these conversations, telling these stories, building support, showing that, for example, as we saw two weeks ago in a poll in Wyoming, that when we win the freedom to marry, even in a red state like Wyoming, we get to majority support. Support goes up, which says to the court, you can do this. We need to keep driving those kinds of stories. Okay, let's talk about the the particular – well, actually, before we talk about the particular – I do have to – in defense of worst-case scenario disorder, the the, the way it works, Evan, is you obsess about the worst-case scenario, the worst possible outcome – to prevent it from happening, that, that that only if you obsess about the worst possible outcome can you safely pre- prevent it. So I'm well, doing I'm doing I, my I, part to, for the marriage yeah. equality struggle by obsessing about the worst <laughs> thank case you. scenario. Yeah, well, thank you, Dan. You certainly have done your part in all seriousness, <laughs> but not that, but not that way. Because what I would say is that too many people want to spend too much time sort of analyzing every scenario instead of focusing on where we are right now and what we need to do. You know, there are there are lots of twists in the road ahead, but let's not be planning stage 12. Let's be focusing on what can we do now to really get what we want. Okay, so what can people who are listening who may not have been involved in the marriage equality struggle up to now, what can they do, a concrete thing they can do right now, this holiday season, to help? Yeah, well, obviously the immediate one that comes to mind as we head toward the end of the year is donate. Donate to the organizations that are leading this fight, you know, our legal groups, Lambda Legal, the ACLU, National Center for Lesbian Rights, GLAD in Massachusetts, have been at the forefront of many of these cases. And a lot of them are being conducted by private attorneys, but with the support and assistance of those groups. And also, they all deserve uh, and need support. And I'll say, and Freedom to Marry is very deserving of your support as well. FreedomToMarry.org, you're too... You're too much of a mensch to, to ask people to donate to your own organization, so I'm going to jump in and, and order well, people to donate to Freedom to Marry. Yeah. Well, my, my worst-case scenario is people don't support Freedom to Marry and other groups just when we're on the verge of getting the job done. This is no time to drop the ball, so thank you for that. Okay, so let's talk about the, the, these pickers. This is a, a gay couple. They live in Minnesota. They are about to move to Kentucky, and they're wondering if their marriage is uh, exportable. Yeah, well, this is a perfect example of why we are not done. And while people should be happy about, you know, thrilled by the progress we've made, even those of us who live in freedom to marry states and are having the federal government now, thanks to the win last year, respecting our marriages, so we're feeling like we've really come a long way, and we have, but we're still not done because some of us, as in the case of this caller, is are moving from Minnesota to Kentucky. And they're thrown right back into a place where their marriage is not going to be respected by the state of Kentucky, at least for now, depending on what happens with the cases that are now knocking on the door of the Supreme Court. The federal government will continue to treat them as what they are, married, but they will endure a patchwork of discrimination that they thought they had solved when they won the Freedom to Marry in Minnesota. And that's a perfect example of why we're not done. Oh, sorry. Wait one second. Uh, I had the question, too much marijuana legal here in Washington State, as you know. 
Wait, sorry. What did you say? I, I, I thought so. Kentucky is one of the states that not has not yet uh, had marriage equality marriage down its throat. Right. Um, it's, I'm just breaking. We, right we, we won. We won in Kentucky in the lower court, but it's one of the states that the Sixth Circuit overturned. It's one of the cases that is now heading toward the Supreme Court. So, what would your advice be to this couple? Don't move to Kentucky, or move to Kentucky and fight. Well. Uh, look, uh, people have to make the life decisions about how much discrimination can they put up with. You know, not that long ago, we were all dealing with and enduring a huge amount of discrimination. People in 15 states are still enduring a huge amount of discrimination. But all of us are vulnerable to some discrimination, and people are going to have to just sort of make that choice, even as we work hard to end that discrimination everywhere. But what I would say is that the couple needs to understand that at least for a period of time, though they are legally married, they are as married as any couple on the planet, Kentucky will not respect their marriage, at least until it, it has to, depending on what happens with the cases that are moving forward. Now, you've said and that, even, the, you said that yeah. the federal government respects their marriage. And, you, That's and right. if you're legally married, the federal government respects your marriage, whatever state you live in, even if you live in a state where same-sex marriage isn't legal or respected. Uh, aren't there some federal rights and benefits that are controlled by the states? And isn't that uh, yeah. sort of an open question as to whether couples who are legally married and so recognized by the federal government but live in a state that doesn't recognize their marriage, can the state interfere with their federal benefits and protections? Yeah, so exactly. One of the things our movement won last year through the DOMA challenges culminating in the Windsor case uh, last year in the Supreme Court is that the federal and then the, the swift and strong implementation of the victory that the Obama administration led with the working with us uh, over the course of the next several months is that the federal government will now respect lawful marriages, even in states that discriminate. And that's true for virtually all the federal protections and responsibilities that come with marriage. But as you just said, rightly, there are a handful of those federal protections and responsibilities, the most important of which being Social Security, that is pegged to not where you got married, but where you live. And so if you are living in a state that discriminates, the federal government will not be able, for the purposes of Social Security, in most cases, to respect your marriage, even though the administration would like to. There's litigation around that. You know, again, our legal groups are fighting to get that fixed. But the real fix is to end marriage discrimination nationwide. Evan Wolfson, he's the founder and president of Freedom to Marry. If you want to get a better idea of the amazing and groundbreaking and revolutionary work that Evan has done, pick up the book Winning Marriage by Mark Solomon. It's a history of the marriage equality movement that really, uh, really unpacks it and really gives credit to Everyone in the fight, including Evan Wolfson, who's been so important to the fight. Uh, founder of Freedom to Mary, thank you for jumping on the phone, Evan, today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for getting the word out. We're not done. We're not done. And go to freedomtomary.org and kick in a few bucks before Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or whatever it is you're celebrating. Uh, and let's win this. Let's win it, win it, win it. We've been winning. Let's finish it. Let's win it. Thanks so much, Evan. Thank you. Happy holidays. Hey, Dan. I am a lesbian from the Midwest, and I've been with my partner for three years, living with her for about a year now, um, and we have this problem that comes up once a month. Can you guess? Whenever I get my period, I get insanely crabby. I am super on edge. I get really uptight, and all of the things that are just minor issues, the other three and a half weeks of the month become huge issues during this week. And I 
don't know what to do. My partner is driving her nuts. And we've tried, like, spending, just giving each other more space during this time and just, like, limiting contact because I blow up. And I know it's, it's terrible. I don't know what to do. And I know that other women go through this and, like, I don't necessarily want to, I don't think I deserve a pass for how I'm behaving, but I just, I would love some advice on, like, coping skills. Like, how do I get through this time? And I know this, like, sweetie, probably don't want to talk about this, but if there's any other people that you could have, doctors that have suggestions, I would really appreciate it. When Christian conservatives like Rick Santorum, who's just announced that he's running for president in 2016, Rick Santorum, who still has a Google problem and will continue to have a Google problem if I have anything to say about it, when they go after access to contraceptives because they think they're wrong and bad, I've said on the show, I've said on Twitter, I've said on my blog and my column that birth control is for men too. And, you know, why do they hate straight people so much? Straight rights watch. We should watch out for, you know, straights and lesbians, not lesbians. We should watch out for straight people, straight rights. Birth control is for men too because people use birth control when they're having opposite sex sex and trying not to have babies. And people have jumped down my throat and rightfully so, but you know, you can't cover, tag every base in every fucking post or comment or tweet that you make that not all people who take birth control are having opposite sex sex, that there are people who take birth control because their periods are insane and their cramps are horrible and their 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 mood swings when they have their periods are bananas and off the hook and they need birth control to tamp all that down. So lady lesbian, it probably hasn't occurred – maybe it hasn't occurred to you to talk to your doctor about birth control. But that would be my first recommendation. Talk to your doctor about birth control, which you don't need to protect yourself from your partner's sperm cells because your partner ain't got none unless you borrowed some. But you may find it very effective at dialing back the intensity level of your periods and your mood swings and all the rest of it and your cramps if you have cramps. It's very effective, I am told, whenever I frame birth control as an exclusively straight opposite sex sex thing. Very effective and a lot of lesbians take it for that reason, not to protect themselves from spermies but to protect themselves from the crazies. Their own crazies, right? What the hormones in the swings bring out of them. But I'm throwing this call out there to other listeners. If you have coping mechanisms that don't involve hormonal birth control, which some people find problematic, some women, it really tanks their libido. And with lesbian bed death being an eternal risk for women in same-sex relationships, maybe that's a risk you don't want to run. So there perhaps are other coping mechanisms for the batshit crazies that you're experiencing that I'm not saying that women having their periods are crazy, but you, this woman, this particular individual woman is saying that her periods make her crazy. Other people who've coped with the same thing in their partners who want to share how they got through it, their strategies, give us a call 206-201-2720. Share your coping mechanisms and we will play them on a future show. Hi, I'm calling with a response for the teacher uh, with the masturbating student from episode 424. I work with students in Australia who uh, have experienced some trauma, uh, high school age students, and I know a lot of students that have experienced trauma explore power dynamics with things like masturbating and sexual display. So if it is that kind of student, you need to be sensitive, but you also need to protect yourself. I think that 
uh, beyond talking to the nurse in your school, you should also follow up with some counselling for yourself. Any incidents like this, you should email the leadership in your school so that if it does blow up, uh, it doesn't blow up in your face and there's some records. Uh, I think that if you talk to that student about her behaviour, you should make sure that there's another teacher in the room and perhaps ask that a female teacher talk to her if this is the kind of behaviour that she's displaying uh, in front of you. And also, when you do talk to her, if it is you that talks to her, that you should uh, discuss with her that it's your workplace and that you deserve uh, good respect and that masturbating in class is, is really poor respect. I find often that if I remind students that I'm a person that's working and that their behaviour affects me, and then doing things in front of me is the same as someone doing it in front of them at their part-time job or their parents, that it's a really excellent reminder and it really drives home that good behaviour. Good luck with that. Protect yourself. I'm calling about episode 424, a woman who had a two-year crush on a co-worker and can't act on it because she's married. I've had a crush for over 20 years on my best friend, and we're both married to someone else. As hard as I try to deny it, I'd be constantly wet when I talked to or just thought about him. So one day, I asked him for a favor. He measured his cock for me in length and girth, and I bought a toy that's the exact measurement of his penis, and I only use it when I fantasize about him. While the caller doesn't know this guy's dimensions, I say take a guess and buy yourself a toy, name it after him, and have sex with it whenever you feel the urge to fuck your coworker. You stay happily married, you're not unfaithful to your husband, and you still have a salient-free piece of this guy to pleasure you when you need to feel him inside you. To the woman in episode 424 who was romantically attracted to men uh, but only interested in having sex with women, date a trans man, a man with a pussy. It's perfect. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. We want to thank our Magnum subscribers to the Savage Lovecast. We also want to encourage those of you who are not yet subscribers to think about becoming one. You can try out a subscription for just five bucks for one month. Gives you access to the entire history of Savage Lovecast programs. And if you're a subscriber and there's somebody difficult or sexually blocked or sexually not blocked on your Christmas list and you're thinking about a gift, you can gift the Savage Lovecast. Go to savagelovecast.com and click on the gift button to give the gift of my mouth. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Carolyn Hacks on Twitter at Carolyn Hacks. Follow Evan Wolfson at Evan Wolfson. And while you're online, think about making a donation at freedomtomarry.org. Let's win the game, freedomtomarry.org. Taking a few more bucks, we're almost there. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for doing